Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of our program. We are in Season 9 and our theme this season is Advancements in Congenital Heart Disease. Our show today is The Roadmap to Success for Complex CHD Survivors and our guest is Dr. Gil Wernofsky. Gil Wernofsky is a pediatric cardiologist and pediatric cardiac intensivist. He has worked at Boston Children's Hospital, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, also known as CHOP, and Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami, Florida, where he was the medical director of patient and family-centered care. At CHOP, he was the founder and medical director of the Neurocardiac Care Program and the Associate Chief of Pediatric Cardiology. For the past 30 years, Dr. Warnofsky has been particularly interested in the long-term functional outcomes following surgery for critical heart disease, particularly transposition of the great arteries, tetralogy of Fallot, and forms of single ventricle, such as hypoplastic left heart syndrome. He was recently awarded the 2015 Neuberger-Bellinger Award for his career contributions to the field of neurodevelopment in children with heart disease. His career goal is to identify factors in the care of children with complex CHD to improve overall outcomes, longevity, and a quality of life through a holistic, interdisciplinary approach to care. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dr. Warnowski. Hi, Anna. It's so good to speak with you again, and thanks for having me on your show. Well, I'm so happy we finally did it. This has been a goal of mine for a long time. I had the good fortune of meeting Dr. Warnowski way back in, I think it was 1999. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> and ever since I started the podcast, I knew that eventually I would talk you into coming on the show. So thank you so much for being here today. Oh, and thank you for contributing to our book so long ago, too, Anna. That was a fantastic addition and very well received. Oh, well, thank you. I really enjoyed doing that. Well, you sent me a very interesting article, and I'd like for us to discuss that article today. The title of the article is Creating a Lesion-Specific Roadmap for Ambulatory Care Following Surgery for Complex Congenital Heart Disease, which is quite a mouthful, but for any of you who are interested in reading that, I will make sure that I put it up on my website, www.hearttoheartwithanna.com, because Dr. Warnofsky was kind enough to share the article with all of you. So first of all, not everybody that is listening to the program is in the medical field. So can you tell us what the title of your article means to the everyday person in the CHD community? Of course. I'm sorry I get so wordy sometimes, but the idea behind the article is to create a framework for the long-term follow-up of children and young adults 
with complex congenital heart disease. And by definition, most of us now consider congenital heart disease to be any type of structural abnormality of the heart or even electrical abnormalities of the heart. But most of us agree that the term complex congenital heart disease is CHD that is serious enough or significant enough to require surgery or a cath intervention in the first few months of life. So this manuscript is really dedicated to those children and their families. And one of the analogies that I like to use about this roadmap came from when we were kids and played, I don't know if you remember it, that Milton Bradley game, the game of life, where you had a little car and you spun a wheel and I told you how many spaces to go. And as I thought about the follow-up for children with congenital heart disease, I thought of that game. I'm not sure why, but I thought of that game of the child and the family sort of progressing through all the wonderful parts of life and the challenges that some of these children have and thinking of a way that we might be able to both improve the outcomes for these kids and young adults, but also to give a bit more of a framework and an anticipation of what type of testing these children might use or need. I love it that the game of life is part of your inspiration. I think that's really neat. When I give this talk to professionals, I frequently use a picture of that game, and I think I can see many people in the audience nodding their head, oh, yeah, I get that concept. That makes sense. And as I think we'll talk a little bit over the, the course of the show, there are a number of things related to car analogies that I think will ring true to many of us. Right. I looked online to see if other childhood illnesses also had some kind of roadmap, like the one that you recommended in your article. And I was able to find an article with a roadmap or a plan for children with cancer. Were you aware of such roadmaps for other critical childhood diseases? Thanks for bringing that up. I was not aware of that, although the concept certainly makes sense. And it also is not surprising to me that the physicians and the parents who are involved in kids who have survived cancer have taken this concept to the next level. What we're dealing with, what the similarities are when we look back 30 years or so, was the entire focus of what we did as practitioners was about survival. And for both cancer and congenital heart disease and many other childhood diseases, diabetes is an example, um, cystic fibrosis is another we now are dealing with a generation of teenagers and young adults that didn't exist on this planet before. And we have to strategically think about the way of maximizing their quality of life. Well, I love that because, as you know, I have an adult survivor now with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And you're right. We were not given very good odds that our son would make it that long, you know, make it to adulthood. In fact, I wasn't even given good odds that he would survive his first surgery. So I think things are really different now than they were 22 years ago when my son was born. And I love it that you mentioned quality of life because I think that's a big part of what you professionals are having to look at now. Your surgery are so good and the medical follow-up that you have is so excellent that a lot of our kids are making it to adulthood, but it's that quality of life that is just so important. Yeah, you've brought up a number of great points there. First of all, it's so great to hear how well your son is doing and he clearly was a pioneer and you were a pioneer as a mom of this whole process. Just as an aside, I recently was working with a medical student who's now a pediatric resident who has hypoplastic left heart syndrome down here in Miami was able to scrub in on a case with our surgeon, Dr. Redmond Burke, 
of a Norwood operation. I'm pretty sure it's the first time that someone with a Norwood operation scrubbed in to assist on a Norwood operation. And when, oh you, and when you think about what the quality of life can be and what we are striving for, it's incredibly humbling to be able to do what we do. It's truly fantastic. And one of the challenges that we have, Anna, is not the agreement that we have to focus in both on quality of life and survivorship, but who and how are we going to achieve improvements in that area? Because I'm trained as a pediatric cardiologist, and I know we need to look at health and wellness and neurodevelopment, but I'm certainly not expert in those fields. So you got to put together a team that works together and needs to be coordinated for the long-term well-being of these children and young adults. And that's, I think, the next challenge that we have in our field. Or in any field that's dealing with critical illnesses. Absolutely. Just like you said, with the cystic fibrosis, diabetes, cancer, this isn't a new concept, I don't think, for any of those fields. Because unfortunately, it's not uncommon for somebody who has one major illness or disease for that to affect other parts of the body. I just finished recording a program with Dr. Fred Wu about liver involvement in Fontan patients. Yes. And so I think what we're seeing, especially as these children turn into adults and then they're actually hitting their 30s now, we have some Fontan patients who are in their 40s and even 50s, which is pretty phenomenal to me. We're seeing all new problems because of what these funky hearts <laughs> with their <laughs> special anatomy it's pretty fascinating to me, and it's also kind of scary because there are still a lot of unknowns. And like you said, Alex is 22. Yes, he's a pioneer, and yet there's a whole group of people 10 years and even 20 years older than him, but it's a very small cohort. And so, unfortunately, when these people get lost to follow-up care, then we don't know what to expect in the future. Wouldn't you think that that's part of the problem, especially here in the United States? Oh, without question. I think the unknown part of all of this is a huge unspoken about issue. I think it's being spoken about more and more now, especially with the advent of social media. When you started down this pathway, the kind of stuff that we're doing today was unimaginable. But the, right. but the ability to share information has been both helpful, but also, I'm sure, a bit scary as you move down the line. I wanted to also emphasize what you were talking about, the cohort, the very small cohort of young adults. And I do consider 40 and 50-year-olds now young adults. Um, the young adults with Fontans, we have to remember they were operated on in 1970. So right. what we find in those young adults and how they're feeling and how they're doing may or may not be applicable to the child who was operated on in 2015. And right. that's both scary and exciting. I'd also like to comment on two things you said, if that's okay. One is the, the notion about problems that occur. I think wording is particularly important. A lot of times docs use the term complications, which I don't particularly like, the complications of the Fontan, for example, or the complications of an arterial switch. I think it's probably better to think of these things as consequences, that these are the consequences of surgical mending of the heart. And if we think of them that way, we have an opportunity to mitigate some of the long-term effects or at least delay them. And the other thing that I wanted to mention when you talk about quality of life is we can't forget about the siblings, 
and the families of these children. They're all affected. Certainly the child with congenital heart disease is our focus, but the other part of this is thinking about how that impacts the entire family. Oh, I love it that you think that way. You're a very holistic person, and we'll be able to get into that a little bit more later, but I think that thinking about the entire family is just of critical importance, so I'm glad that you mentioned that. In the next segment, we are going to get to the nitty-gritty of what you recommend regarding the roadmap. When I saw so many of these CHG groups growing, I found family just ready to join me. Anyone who is a member of the adult congenital heart defect community can be a guest on our show. We have a great year planned and we look forward to sharing other interesting topics. Heart to Heart with Nicole and David, serving the ACHD community, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Can you tell me what the response to your article from the pediatric cardiology community has been so far? Well, that's a great question, Anna. I guess the best way I could say this is radio silence. And I don't mean radio in terms of the way we're doing the podcast these days, but I've had surprisingly little positive or negative feedback on the article. And I think part of that is despite the Internet and the way that we can find information now, the dissemination of articles proactively is somewhat challenging. There's been some work done in internal medicine that from the time guidelines are approved by an official organization, which ours have not been, of course, yet. It takes anywhere between seven to nine years before they're adopted. So it's my hope that in the current era, some of this can be adopted more quickly. But there's many competing interests in this whole area in terms of both financial competing interests and quite frankly, ego of certain practitioners who might not want someone or some outside force to say, you shouldn't be telling me how to follow my patient with Tetralogy of Fallot, uh, or I have not seen these problems in my experience. You know, these are the realities of getting guidelines out there. And I'm certainly not saying that what we put in our manuscript are the be-all and end-all of guidelines. This was meant more to stimulate discussion that this type of follow-up program is necessary. Well, I think what you put together is quite amazing. And what I liked was that you used a very holistic approach when you did this. This wasn't just your brainchild, if I'm not mistaken. You actually pulled together a number of resources to do this, including other professionals in other fields. Yes, the, the stimulus for this actually began about 10 years ago in 2006. I don't know if you remember the days of listservs. It's hard to believe that it was 10 years. I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh, yes, it was about I do. <laughs> 10 years ago, and, and it was before SurveyMonkey or just when SurveyMonkey was coming out. And I put out a request to find out how physicians were following their patients with transposition of the great arteries, tetralogy of Fallot, and hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And then I also put out a request for families to find out about what they remembered from their visits and what they wanted. And I heard from 434 pediatric cardiologists around the world and about 480 families of children. And it was interesting what doctors thought they explained was not what parents heard, 
And that was the key stimulus to sort of saying, well, we need to do a better job with this. Again, this was reviewing the literature, electronically speaking, with almost a thousand patients, families, and providers to try to put this concept together. Wow. Wow. Well, it comes through in the article, and I really encourage everybody to read the article. It's going to be on the website, and it's something that I think as soon as you read it, you go, well, sure, that makes sense. Why hasn't that been done already? (laughs) But that's the way it is with guidelines that do make sense, don't you think? Yeah, and despite the internet and connectivity we have and social media and whatnot, medicine is still much an apprentice-type field. You do it the way you were taught by the person who taught you. It's only now that we're beginning to put together databases. You know, we didn't have the computing technology to put all this stuff together. You can imagine if there's a 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 children with hypoplastic left heart syndrome that have an exercise test. How do you put that data together? How do you interpret that? Does everybody measure it the same way? Did everybody have one? These are all the types of things that are the next phase in our field. The most common theme that I hear is why. She always needed um, a lot of attention. She had strokes. Even though it's a natural inclination to withdraw from the CHD community, I think being a part of it helped me be part of the solution. Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern. I'm Michael Lieben, and I'll be your host as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. What inspired you to come up with the plan for a roadmap for children with critical congenital heart defects? Well, as you know, Anna, I have sort of two parts of my pediatric cardiology career. Part of my inpatient responsibilities has always been in perioperative care, looking after babies right after surgery. But I was given great advice by one of my mentors, Peter Lang, which was to continue seeing outpatients even if I focused on inpatients. And I had two outpatient visits that were really instrumental to me. They both occurred around 2006, 2007, and one was of a young man. He was 14. He had had a very good repair of uh, total anomalous pulmonary venous return. And as a typical 14-year-old, he really wanted no part of seeing me. He would rather play with his electronics, and his mother excused him. And I thought she was going to talk with me about some concerns, maybe about his cardiac health. And she reached into her bag and pulled out a manuscript that I was a collaborator on, looking at neurologic impacts of and neurologic outcomes for patients with total anomalous pulmonary venous return. And she pulled out the manuscript, and she held it in front of me and said, you've known about this for years and you haven't done anything about it. And it was quite overwhelming because she was right. And it was not sufficient to do research and say children with complex congenital heart disease need to be evaluated for neurodevelopmental challenges and then not do anything about it. And that reinforced to me that as a pediatric cardiologist, we were in many ways the captain of the ship But we can't do it all on our own, and we have to find other people to work with, as we were talking about, more of a holistic approach. Right. And around the same time, I saw a young man around the same age who had Tetralogy of Fallot, and I suggested at the visit that we do an MRI next year to assess the cardiac function. And at the time, MRI was relatively new, and they came back after their test, and the MRI was fantastic, which was great. And as soon as I told them about the result, they broke down in tears. And I was 
sort of surprised by that. And I said, well, why are you crying? The results were terrific. And they said, we've been worried sick for months because we figured that since you ordered that fancy test, you were scared of something and not telling us. And it was, again, really eye-opening to me of how nerve-wracking it must be to bring your child to the doctor, not knowing what they're going to say and not having a strategic plan for what test gets done when. And that specifically was why we started the concept of a roadmap, so that there would be anticipatory screening for children that were doing well to look for challenges and consequences of their heart surgery. Well, I like it that you said that because that was something that I was thinking about when I was talking with Dr. Wu about possible liver complications in Fontan physiology is that why don't we know that at year five, we're going to start testing for the liver and immediately following the Fontan, we should do a neurodevelopmental test, you know, just to have a baseline. But we aren't given that kind of information. And I think Things are complicated right now because we have different types of insurance. The United States is probably not the best place to start a roadmap because we don't have the socialized medicine, so we can't make sure that we give the same kind of care to everybody because of insurance issues. Maybe someplace like Canada or England or someplace that has a more socialized medicine would be better, but it would be really nice to know that these are the tests that are going to be done because as a mom, as a heart bomb, I'm always waiting for that other shoe to drop. Yes, I understand. Yeah. I had three ultrasounds when I was pregnant, and they never picked up on the fact that my son really only had half a heart. So it makes you kind of scared because I had already had one perfectly healthy child, and then to have a child with such a complex condition, it's unnerving. Yeah. And then, like you said, to have these different tests, and you know why you're ordering the test, or maybe not. It seems like there's still a lot of uncertainties, and it's it's a lot of guesswork on the part of the professionals. They're doing what they hope is in the best interest of the child, but we don't have enough statistical data to say that this is exactly what should be done in a particular moment. Right. And I would add, although it's frustrating to certainly families who've been through it and say, why didn't we do that back 15 years ago? That's the nature of progress, right? So we learn the consequences that happen. Right. And then we say, oh, we need to measure that. And if you took a hundred doctors who read the article or hear Dr. Wu talk about liver consequences of the Fontan, those 100 doctors may order 50 different tests at 20 different times. Well-meaning, right thing to do, but not the way to move forward and not the way to help families know when it's going to happen and what it might mean. The whole goal behind the roadmap is to standardize screening, recognize what the challenges are and standardize the screening for them. This will answer that first scenario we talked about. You've known about this, why aren't you doing anything about it? And the second part is we've been worried for months because we didn't know why you were doing that test. Right, right, right. I think it solves a lot of problems. I think one of the big concerns being a heart family is what's next not knowing what's next. And there are certain things that you doctors can't predict. You cannot predict if a patient is going to develop PLE or certain arrhythmias or something like that. But you can let the parents know, these are the things we're keeping our eye on. We're going to do baselines of X, Y, and Z at this time. And I don't want you to be concerned. We do this with all of our patients. I think it would take away some of that fear. 
Well, I think you bring up exactly the point that we and my colleagues used to open up our manuscript. And I do hope that people have a chance to take a look at the second page, because what we've learned now in follow-up is that there are certain challenges that all children with congenital heart disease should be screened for. And then there are the specific issues related to what the surgery was for that child. As an example, all children should be evaluated for neurodevelopmental progress. And that's a recent statement by the American Heart Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics authored by Brad Marino in 2012. There are a number of other things such as rhythm of the heart. There's a high incidence of obesity, just like the rest of the country in congenital heart disease, psychosocial adjustment, those sorts of things. All kids should be screened for that. But then if you have an arterial switch versus tetralogy versus repair of truncus arteriosus or any of these things, then there are what we call lesion-specific types of follow-ups, hence the title that we have. Mm -hmm. And in page two and three of our article, we talk specifically about those issues and how and when they should be addressed. That's all excellent information, and I do encourage people to read it. And you don't have to be a doctor to read this. Yes, it's pretty technical, and you may not understand everything, but if you don't, this is a good opportunity to talk to your child's doctor, or if you're a survivor yourself, for you to talk to your doctor if you have any questions. Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. So, Dr. Wernowski, it's one thing to have a roadmap for someone who has appendicitis or gallstones or even a myocardial infarction. All of those conditions are fairly simple and rather benign to treat, although I'm certain that every person is unique and that there are variations amongst people, even with those kinds of conditions. If I'm not mistaken, your article is proposing to create a roadmap for care of children with complex congenital heart defects. I once did a podcast called Snowflakes, How Each Heart is Unique, where we talked about how different they can be from one person to another. So how do you propose to create a roadmap for so many different complex CHDs? That's a great question, Anna, and it was a challenge. And it it sort of built on the success in the inpatient community. So, for example, there are things called care pathways. And this is relatively new, maybe in the last 10 or 15 years, where Someone who comes in, as you say, with appendicitis or gallstones has a certain order of things that are done by the healthcare team. And not all of it is done, let's take gallstones for an example, not all of it is done by the general surgeon. Some is done by the advanced practice nurse. Some of it is done by the bedside nurse. Some is checked on by the social worker, et cetera. And it brings out the important point of an inpatient, interdisciplinary, and holistic team. So we propose to extend that concept over a very long period of time with a care pathway, and I've called it a roadmap, and there's a lot of analogies to cars, that will look at the various things over the lifetime or the lifespan of a child and young adult 
that needs to be evaluated. And what's different about the conditions you mentioned before is that those are problems that generally can be truly fixed. You take the gallbladder out or you take the appendix out or you treat pneumonia and that's done. But as you well know and the congenital heart disease community knows that although the surgeons mend the hearts extremely well, it's a lifelong chronic condition that needs to be followed. And that was the whole point of the roadmap. That just makes so much sense that with the gallbladder or appendicitis, something like that, you do, you just kidney stones. Once you remove that, the situation is taken care of and the person is quote unquote fixed. But we know that with people with congenital heart disease, even if you quote unquote fix them, such as with the arterial switch procedure, that heart doesn't look like somebody who has a perfectly healthy, normal heart that hasn't been quote unquote fixed. And so now, even through the process of fixing the problem, you've introduced all kinds of new conditions which could occur, including scarring that could cause electrical problems, thus arrhythmias. And so it is a lifelong condition. And I don't know if we can stress that enough. It's certainly something we talk about on this podcast a lot. And that is once you're born, with a congenital heart defect, especially a complex congenital heart defect, it's a lifelong condition. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I guess the other thing I wanted to bring up for the audience mm -hmm. that was a huge stimulus for me and my colleagues in this regard was I was looking at the owner's manual of my car and it said, well, at a thousand miles, you do this. And at 5,000 miles, you do this. And at 10,000 miles, you do this. And at 30,000, you do a whole bunch of stuff. And then that process repeats. And that made a lot of sense to me. You know, you have a car and this is what you do to maintain it. When my kids were born, now they're young adults, but my kids were born, there was a set pathway of when they got their immunizations and when X, Y, and Z was screened. But we send a baby home after an arterial switch operation, and there are as many different plans as there are pediatric cardiologists. And that's what this is meant to identify. When we first started this process, I think the mistake that I made and others have been challenged by was how often do you do this? How often do you ask pediatric cardiologists to do a set of screens? I think you'd like it to be every year or two, but that is probably too rigid. So what we came up with was doing this at particularly important milestones in a child's progress. And that's at their first birthday, before they enter school, uh, preschool, for example, before they enter middle school, before they enter high school, and before they transfer to their adult congenital cardiologist. It makes it more manageable. It's almost like it's in bite-sized chunks when you do it that way. And it makes sense. It's just like before you have a child go to school, you make sure they're up to date on their immunizations. Before your child goes to college, you have to go through that whole process again. And so there are certain milestones that our children reach when they're growing up. And so it only makes sense that you would have checkups on the heart or certain other organs at specified times, just like with the car. I really loved the car analogy. And when I was reading your article, I was struck by how common sense it seemed to be. And the analogies that you use just helped to make it even more understandable. Oh, thank you, Anna. What's the great challenge you have in having this kind of program adopted, hopefully worldwide? I really want to emphasize that what we put in our article is a starting point. 
I certainly don't know if the test frequency is right, too frequent, too infrequent. It's sort of like the Goldilocks type approach. But I think the only way that we know that is to start somewhere. The biggest challenge, quite frankly, is, uh, well, there's probably two. The first is knowledge that these are the things to look for and that there are guidelines out there. The second, however, is buy-in combined with availability. So for example, if we think it's important that a cardiac MRI get done, you know, I take for granted that I can get that done here in Miami or up in Philadelphia, but I don't know if that's possible in Temple, Texas. So buy-in is an issue, availability is another issue. We hope that by scheduling five, for lack of a better term, 60,000 mile checkups between surgery and college, that there will be less infringement on a practitioner's availability to make independent decisions. Because we all know our patients and families best, and we all have our own ways of doing things. It is crucial that your audience understand that medicine has changed from a single practitioner focus to gradually a guideline-focused field. There was a lot of resistance to this when medicine was much more paternalistic. But I think now that it's much more collaborative and data-driven, we have an opportunity. But, you know, I'm being realistic. I think it's going to be another five to ten years before we have something along these lines in the United States, hopefully earlier in other countries. I think that's really interesting what you said about there being two great challenges. And I wonder which one is the bigger challenge in some ways, because I agree with you. I think, first of all, gathering the knowledge, gathering the data, are these five checkups going to be sufficient? And just like with that program that I did called Snowflakes, even if you have 10 kids with quote-unquote hypoplastic left heart syndrome, all of those children or adults, now that we have them surviving to adulthood, are going to look different. And there are going to be unique problems for, or I shouldn't say problems, opportunities. <laughs> for consequences. Consequences, yeah, for each of those people. And so no practitioner can just use any guidebook and apply it to everybody. Everybody is going to have their own unique set of consequences that need to be addressed on a as-needed basis. And, you know, sometimes that might even be some psychological things that are going on, which is a whole other roadmap that probably needs to be <laughs> created for yeah. our families. I'll get, to that. I'll get to that in just a second. But I guess the analogy that I would use with you, Anna, is, again, the car analogy. Yeah. You do the 60,000-mile checkups, but if the wiper blades need to be changed, you do that right. in between. Yeah, If exactly. the check engine light goes on, you do that in between. Right. The whole purpose of the roadmap is to provide the screening and surveillance, not the individual management. Oh, that's so well put. That's perfect. That's excellent. Okay, so this is a starting point, and I can see where creating this roadmap can give people something tangible to hold on to. The parents, too. They can know that, okay, it looks like maybe for the next five years or 10 years, we should be okay unless a certain challenge presents itself. So I, I love it. I think this is a great opportunity for everybody to work together. I like how it's a collaborative effort. And I think you're right. I do think medicine has changed, especially over the last two decades. It's not what it used to be. It's not as paternalistic. So I really appreciate you. It's not just pediatric cardiology that has changed a lot in the last 20 years. It's all of medicine. 
Yes, there's no question. I think that's a good opportunity for me to throw a shout out out to two of my collaborators, Alyssa Olin, who's an advanced practice nurse at Nicholas Children's, and Stacy Lynn, who is a mom of a young girl now with hypoplastic left heart syndrome and was a key participant and now president in Sisters by Heart. And the reason I asked the two of them to work with me is I go in and have an office visit and talk to the parents. And then I go out of the room and it's usually the nurse's job to translate for the parents. What, what did he really mean by that? So Alyssa gets a lot more of the tougher questions than I do in the office. And she was really helpful to me to understand the one-two approach of a couple of practitioners that get at some of the issues. And then, of course, Stacy gives a completely different perspective than Melissa or I could have uh, having lived through this. And they were very key in the construction of this roadmap concept. Thank you, Dr. Wardowski, for sharing this information with us. This is so great. Well, that concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Please find and like us on Facebook. And while living with a chronic illness like congenital heart defects can be scary, we are members of a growing population of very caring individuals, just like Dr. Gil Wernowski. So wherever you are, my friends, remember, you are not alone. And enjoy the music. Absolutely. And don't forget to go buy it at iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time. <laughs>